I'm Catherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. While I love every single guest on the Uncertain podcast, this interview with Makoto Fujimura stands out as one of my favorite. I really um, appreciated even the gap that I felt, right, between myself and the art world. I, I felt like I was being moving away from the dominant kind of thesis of our time. And then the, the simultaneously, like realizing that the church is an institution that does not value this experience, you know, a visceral experience that I had in the studio. And in fact, was some somewhat anti-culture. I had to defend myself all the time to my sisters and brothers and justify why I'm being an artist and so forth. Makoto's book, Art and Faith, recently released, is about, as the name suggests, the intersection of art and faith, and basically how they're kind of one and the same. It's been a while since we've had an artist on the podcast. As such, here is a reminder about why we're interviewing artists. The Uncertain Podcast is challenging the church to do better, which often means naming a lot of really dark things that we don't really want to talk about. As we saw in season one and throughout season two, there's a lot of horror happening in the church, and this is not isolated. It's happening almost everywhere. Seriously, when I started this podcast, I had no idea how bad it really was, and I think I'm still getting glimpses of what is really going on here. But part of moving forward and doing good is not just naming the truth of right now, it's also looking forward to what things can be like in the future. So that's where the artists come in, and that's why they're being invited into this conversation. As we discuss in this episode, Artists usually name things first and are usually about 10 years ahead in seeing what's coming. But as the centuries have proven, people don't always listen to them. So we're inviting them in at the beginning of the conversation rather than at the end. Not only are artists accurately naming the present, they're also able to sort of foretell where we could be and where we need to be. Art is also pivotal for helping us navigate and heal from trauma. And I think we can all agree we are a traumatized generation. From COVID to volatile politics to rampant abuse in the church in the Western world, we are severely traumatized. Artists can help us navigate this collective trauma that we are all carrying around inside of us. Here's my interview with Makoto Fujimura. Where are you located right now? I am in Princeton. I have been okay. here for last, uh, you know, quarantine. Yeah. And you have a spot in Pasadena, right? I used to. Yeah. And I was done with Fuller a year and a half ago. I kept the studio, but it didn't make sense to keep it after the pandemic started. Right. Okay. So you just gave it up after the yeah. pandemic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where, did you, you said you worked at Fuller? I, yes, I was the vision director of Brand Center for five years. All before. right, cool. I'm yeah. in Los Angeles, so I've Okay, okay. Bit. Where in Los Angeles are you? I'm in West Los Angeles, Barrington and Santa Monica. So okay. it's, it's sure. raining right now. So the, the traffic yeah. sounds a lot louder because the roads <laughs> are wet. So right, right, it's probably right, getting picked right. up on the audio, but that, yeah, you, as it doesn't rain, doesn't rain that much. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's so special when it does. So I'm so excited that this finally worked out. Yes. Uh, really enjoyed the book. I love any books about art and faith. That's my okay. basically my favorite thing. So yeah. a little background of this podcast. So I founded a nonprofit called Tears of Eden, which is a community resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. Wow. And then the podcast is basically just challenging the church to do better yeah. because a lot of people can't name that they experience spiritual abuse. They just right. can name. I had an, a painful experience in a yes. church, a wider reach. So pull in. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so season one was a lot of just addressing abuse in general that happens in the church. 
Season two, I'm doing a lot of just interviewing artists because mm-hmm. artists are usually the ones that, and you I even mentioned that in your book, they get yeah. there first yes. and they're the, the culture changers. And yes. so I just yeah. want to invite artists into this I conversation. Oh, that's beautiful. And so uh, that is why I was really excited. I actually, one of the artists that I interviewed told me about your book. And oh, I, was, I see. Oh my gosh, got to read it. And then I read it. I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, I got to get him on here. I'm really excited about that. One of the questions I've just been asking all the artists to start out is just to tell me your creative origin story. So I would love to hear your creative sure. origin story. Yeah. So I have a painting that my mother kept. I did it when I was like three. She kept this painting and, and framed it and gave it to me for my college graduation, oh. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> which tells you a lot about my mother as an educator. And uh, she saw something in me and she had two uncles who were artists. One was a playwright, one was a painter. And she's, she never discouraged me from uh, wanting to become an artist, although she told me how hard it was <laughs> for her uncles. And, but this frame painting, I gave it back to her when she went into nursing home. And when she passed away, I, I got it back and I reframed it. it. It hangs in my house as I leaving the house to go to my studio. Wow. That's what I see. And it has the same colors, same gestures that I use today. And, At three. Uh, yeah, three. Yeah. And so I, I think that's my origin story right there. And I tell this in the book, but I felt like something was going through me when I painted or when I made anything. And I thought everybody had this experience. But as it turns out, you don't talk about these things in middle school. And and it was only later on that I connected that visceral experience with the voice of Christ that I begin to understand and hear in in my late 20s. And so that's the beginning of my book, actually. It's really 30 years of writing down these things, connections between what I experienced tangibly in my studio but as I began to articulate that to my friends who did not have that experience and trying to speak in, in, in a, you know, cogent ways, but also I realized that it was important um, to understand theology through this lens, that it wasn't just <clears throat> me experiencing because I'm an artist and I'm biased. And actually, I've spoken with many theologians who told me that that's like the origin story of the Bible, too. God is the creator and God is the artist. And we can learn a lot from artists speaking about their experience. And in my case, since I, I heard the voice of Christ in my 20s, uh, the, the Bible was very fresh to me. I, I didn't have any preconception about it. You know, it, was, it was brand new. <laughs> and I just observed that, my goodness, this is an amazing book about uh, growing your imagination. It was about artistry of God through his people, chosen people and the tabernacle and, you know, so forth. And Jesus came and he was building things. He was building the church. And then it's all about new creation. But then I might go to a typical church and that's not what you hear. There's everything wrong with you, and, and, and which is true. But it's not about new creation. It's about this, almost about the end of, end of the world and how we need to be rescued out of this world. And we, we can't, this world is grown up. So why do anything to preserve it or to cultivate it? So all, all those things, I began to live in this discrepancy and artists doubly exile from the church because we're artists and we see things and we're honest about it. And then we are exiled from the world because if you follow Christ, especially you are seeking after different type of inspiration. And it's not about your ego or self-expression. It's about the uh, new creation. So that's kind of my (laughs) story. I had the same experience. I did grow up in a fundamentalist world where the Bible had a lot of baggage connected to it. But when I don't remember what happened or how this happened, but when I started because I'm a writer, that's my art form is writing. And when I started to read the Bible as a story and as a work of art, yes. it just and poetry. Yeah. it transformed 
and I fell in love with it. Like yeah. it was just this yeah. funky book before, and then suddenly yeah. I'm like, this yeah. is incredible. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Character, plot twist, like yeah. everything. Like right. poetry, it's right. beautiful. Um, right, and it's it's very vulnerable, right, to reality. If we were to write a story about God that we create, it would not come out like this. It's right. very messy, right? Know? Which is why anytime someone tries to recreate like a Bible story yeah. on film, it's terrible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it's <we're> superimposed. <laughs> you, you miss it. You miss yeah. all the nuance. Yeah. You miss it. Yeah. 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 Yes. Oh, thank you for sharing that. I love that your mom yeah. was the one that encouraged you. It was also yeah. very realistic. You said that she said that it's re- it was really hard for your uncles. And she would, but she would say it in a way that was not negative. It was just reality. It was reality check. And I think she knew that I might choose choose to try to make it as an artist. And I think she she wanted to prepare me the best way a mother, awesome. loving mother would. You know? Right, exactly. But she didn't tell you. No, she didn't tell me no. And my father was a research scientist. He was very encouraging. And he, when I told him that I'm going to try to make it as an artist, he said, oh, that's what I wanted to be. So <laughs> go for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, that's, that was the sense. And so I was very fortunate that I had that upbringing of nurture and seeing both of my parents were creative and all all those things matter you know yeah yeah (laughs) how does faith show up in your art currently so uh, that's the thing is that faith was so deeply connected to begin with in that I didn't know what to call it but it was so I I call my conversion at age 27 inversion because it wasn't really turning it was like flipping and I, I just realized that all that I've experienced in life that was enduring and meaningful to me. I had deep connection with certainly the person of Jesus, what he said and did, but historical narrative of the Bible, the, the, the messy stories made sense to me as authentic and true. And so I, I began to, once you have that lens, you start to see the world a little bit differently as well. And your work becomes to take on this, I guess, more of an objective perspective toward your own creation that move beyond self-expression. I really um, appreciated even the gap that I felt, right, between myself and the art world. I, I felt like I was being moving away from the dominant kind of thesis of our time. And then the, the simultaneously, like realizing that the church is an institution that does not value this experience, you know, a visceral experience that I had in the studio. And in fact, was some somewhat anti-culture. I had to defend myself all the time to my sisters and brothers and justify why I'm being an artist and so forth. And, and that journey has forged me. It's, you, you get trapped in this gap and you realize you're in this gap between the world and the church or whatever and yet god seems to indicate through many of the stories of the prophets that is exactly where you're supposed to be Mm. and if you can be faithful to stand in that gap you can be a bridge you can create a bridge for future generations people who exiled to come home in some way so that's been my life as an artist when you experience the exile from the folks who don't identify as Christian and then the exile from <laughs> those in the church, do you feel like it's a similar reason and do you feel like a similar experience or is it drastically different between the two? I'd say that's an interesting question. It is different because with the world, you expect it. Like Jesus warned us, it's thrown out and stones will be thrown at you. And so you expect it. Truth can be very difficult to handle for society in general. I, as an artist, I, I'm always I'm used to being rejected or being just ignored. <laughs> and that's not the church side hurts more because these are supposed to be the body uh, you're connected to. And yet uh, there's this um, sense that, and and this is true even when I became a a leader, elder leader in a church that I helped to plant, that that there's this sense of alienation that, you know, when I see 
God or the Holy Spirit working in, in, in a community or breaking through in, in a larger sense in, in, in a culture. That is very different from the institution of the church ministering to the need. You, you almost have to fight extra hard <laughs> to yeah. bring your brothers and sisters into what you have the Spirit doing. I've gotten used to um, being way ahead of everybody else. So part of my discipleship was like learning how to say what I see patient. By that, you were, you were used <laughs> to being way ahead. So I see things 10 years ahead. I, I see any kind of phenomenon, whether, whether it be something new in culture that's happening or something that is structurally changing, disruptions that very early, we mm-hmm. sense that. I, I'm so highly attuned intuitively. I can walk into a church and sometimes I get invited to speak. I know right away what the idols are, you know, I, what, wow. what people are. Yeah. Now I, I can't articulate it at that point. Yeah. Right. You can so, sense it. Yeah. I can sense it. My intuition knows it. And, and so if I trust that and, and speak from that, I can be very effective, but it takes me a while to even fathom my own, what I'm, my own feelings. So it, you know, you have to be patient with yourself, basically. And if you try to articulate that to the people in front of you, you have to expect that it's going to be hard. It's going to take time. It's going. To, it's not going to be uh, accepted right away, certainly. And you have to use very different terms, terminologies that translate your feelings into the context of the, this particular community. Yeah. And that takes enormous amount of listening. And, and I have to learn that. And when I don't do that, I feel the weight of the gap even more. Right. right. And, and so my life has been the journey of figuring out, okay, what is God teaching me right now? Why am I paying attention to what I'm paying attention to? Mm-hmm. And what does that reveal about my idols, my assumptions, and I had to pull back and do the hard work of examining myself and, and then asking, how can I, because I know that also, on the other hand, God has given me things to say. And that's what the book is. I, I see things and, and it's only one third of what I wrote. My editor was like, I think we should write the first book, <laughs> you know, in the way that people may understand. You have a lot to say. And so I'm grateful for that. So Translating for the common man. <laughs> well, and, and also for myself. Right. It's, it's kind of, you don't know what you know. And until you write it as, as a writer, it's not something that can be held together. And so it's been a good experience of thinking through. And I'm grateful. I've been astonished that like people's reactions to this book, because I, as a communicator, I, I assume that communication is impossible, right? Because I experienced this gap so many times, right? The, even the easiest things are hard to communicate. <laughs> so I just assume that. So I am amazed when somebody actually reads about my book and then respond. The, some of the response has been like, I noticed you write your book in the same way you paint, you know, oh, wow. <laughs> in, in, in layers. And you don't, you don't write your book like in, in a systematic way. Theological books, typically you say what you're going to say and you prove it. And, but I don't do that. Yep. I, I instead walk people through with language and stories so that they have to experience frustration themselves. And then, so it's always like I'm asking a lot of the reader. And yet people have severed to understand it deeply. And they said it's, it's like composing music or, you know, painting in layers. And, and so you, the form fits the content. Theology of making is all about God doing that in creation, mm-hmm. God doing that in through Jesus. And now by reading this narrative, you can walk through that in, and understand it as a way of communicating. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you articulated something for me that I feel like I've always known, but I just, I never had articulated the way you did yeah. about being able to see things 10 years ahead, but then that frustration that no <laughs> one else is seeing it and that you're trying to explain it and no one else and that, that constant frustration. Yeah. And I had never had articulated it that way, but, yeah. and the way that I have 
combated it is not really the right word to use, but managed it, I guess, is just yeah. if by doing a lot of listening, like you were saying, yeah. is just like asking a lot of questions and finding out where people are. And that is where just I worked in vocational ministry for seven years and went to seminary and they talk a lot about incarnational ministry and being yeah. understanding your context and all that kind of stuff. And so um, adapting that to the situation. So yeah, you just articulated that. <laughs> Um, for, for me, which is the whole point of this series about art. So I appreciate that a lot and just, yeah. And then learning to be able to speak into this context rather than come on guys. So you go through that, right? That's part of our growth is being frustrated and in, in our gift, giftings, we, let's go gift frustration. Actually, some people call it that. And it's like, when you have something outstanding, you just assume everybody else has that and mm-hmm. everybody doesn't have that. If you're frustrated in the main area of your calling, that's not a bad sign. It, it's actually a good sign. Okay. <laughs> and, okay. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and because we can learn to, as you say, manage that and, and to, you know, really create into that context. It's like an entry point rather than. Ooh, entry point rather than a dead end. I like mm-hmm. that. So in your book, you talk a lot about the plumbing theology. Yes, yes, so I, I would love to hear you talk about that because that's yeah. a big, that's a big one for me. Um, yeah. Like being an artist yeah. in the church. Yeah. So tell me and, and my apology to all the plumbers out there. You know, <laughs> I, I, I've gotten a few notes from plumbers. and So and needed. We need you both, plumbers. Yeah. Love they're you. both positive. And one, one, guy said I'm a third generational plumber and when I read your plumbing section and you talked about plum- Kintsugi plumbers I, that he said I go into people's homes and I, I do the work but it, it's really to bless the house and I, I pray for people I, I I want to know what they need outside of plumbing and it was beautiful yeah it was really beautiful. That's awesome. and, yeah, and and because fundamentally I think the book is also about work. And yeah. uh, if you can just transpose work with making, right? So making is the main reason you're working. It's not out of drudgery or just to pay rent. It is you're making something. So even a plumber is repairing, but he or she is also making something can. And I plumbing theology is... I needed to explain what I was hearing in most churches. <laughs> and, yeah. and it's this message that when you come to Christ, you, you find salvation, praise God for that. And then you want to tell your neighbors about it. And you, God is going to fix you. He's, he's going to fix everything that's wrong with you. And that's the message we hear. And it's, you go to church and there are all these programs, they give you tools to fix your pipes and you every Sunday there's different tools and yes. you know it's Sunday school so you can learn how to use the tools and you come home and you fix your pipes and how to do it and you're supposed to tell your neighbor hey there's this tool you should come with me next Sunday and they'll teach you how to use and that's what typical sermon mm-hmm. sounds like to me and that um, a, a very rare that I hear a sermon about what's going through the pipes, the water of the Holy Spirit, or the, you know, even blood of Jesus coming to sanctify our imagination, not just to save us out of our damnation. And, and the wine of the new creation flowing back into our place to, for a feast that is to come. And yet we can partake in that feast now by making something mm-hmm. and, and all, all, the, all, all these things is I don't hear in a sermon and it wasn't until I read N.T. Wright's books that I was like I had all these aha moments Tom Wright talks about how we truncate the gospel into information and something that is yeah yeah and so it's not the gospel is the entirety of the bible and it's from uh, creation fall to new creation and he talks about how new creation is happening now through what resurrected reality and i was like wow somebody is finally <laughs> named this and he was so kind to write a forward to this book and, and yes. forward is, is worth the price of the book because he i was expecting a paragraph he wrote a whole thesis <laughs> you know and, and, and of course he does and he articulated things 
about what I was feeding. And, and he was already doing that in his books. But in this forward, he goes the extra mile to meet the artist halfway and to say to the artist that what you're feeding, what you're observing is not just true and important, but it is part of God. That's what he's trying to communicate to the world. And I send this forward to many of my artist friends and they weep because they never heard that there's more than just fixing the pipes and returning to Eden. Work is principally to create, be co-creators as invited by God. We don't understand why, but God invites mm -hmm. us toward this feast and we are the ones that was is supposed to execute the plan and to it's it's our imagination whatever we're creating matters to god so much so that god is going to wait until we make something to show up and that part is is not preached so right. we end up in this perpetual cycle of doing good things, no doubt about it. There's nothing wrong with trying to fix the world, but that becomes our work, right? Like there will be something that we see as our purpose and we see the reason for existence, but that's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying you are a new creation, Christ. You uh, have already possessed the DNA of the new creation. And when you create out of that new creation DNA, you're creating principally the the seed for which the new world will, will, will be birthed out of we don't hear that nope. <laughs> and, and that's like a game that's a part of the new world it's not just yes, evaporating already. and so it's not all these things that are not going to be burnt burnt up in the judgment fire in fact there is a judgment fire that sanctifies us but the work too will be tested paul says in first corinthians 3 which means that there is a different type of judgment for our work. Mm -hmm. And that judgment is, is all about how we created with this new identity in Christ, how we created with new newness, like I say, it's a new newness. It's not like creating a new iPhone, but right. it's, it's creating fundamentally a different type of newness into the world, which is Christ's resurrection. Like you can't fathom that in the mindset. Mm -hmm. There's no way, it doesn't matter how much proof or whatever, it's beyond our capacity to understand. And that's the whole point. So if we as artists tap into that reality and our words and our actions and our art becomes already embedded in your creation, that is in a sense, in, in a really mind-boggling way, if God loved us so much, loved the universe so much, that God decided, chosen his own sacrifice as a way to be dependent on the world. That is, yeah. And this all-sufficient God loved so much that the entire story flips and decided that God would rather be dependent on our fallen humanity. And because of that, Jesus comes and suffers horribly for us and dies the death that we deserve. And yet he, on the resurrection day, he's human. He's still human. <laughs> like he could have been anything. Why would you stay human with its wound marks? Yes. And so that means both the wounds and the fact that Jesus is still human is the new creation, right? That this is the new mm -hmm. vision that we're supposed to get out of that. And Thomas got it because he didn't have to touch the wounds. He worshiped and he, his, 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 the worst fears almost if God shows up with wounds, what I do, that would like change everything. Right. right. And, and that happens. Right. right. And, 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 but we don't have that kind of thing that, that says with trepidation in front of us, what? Like that's scandalous. Like mm -hmm. Jesus, you chose to stay human. Mm -hmm. You could have anything you could, you know, like, like I have to stay human. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's that's gonna be like oh so my words matter you know what i write scrapbook yeah. matter what what i do every day in a studio that nobody sees they matter to god and that 
is just so staggering to think about. And that's the feeling that we should be getting every time we worship. We should be like shocked and we're like, oh my gosh, I haven't made anything. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like <laughs> what a waste of like my energy because I've been trying to do this and that, that defend my turf or out of fear or anxiety. I'm just creating, yeah, exactly. Creating things that doesn't exist. And this gospel, it says to us that you have to create. It doesn't matter. You don't have to be an artist. You can create an omelet, you can garden, you can create anything, but do it with this new identity in Christ. Mm -hmm. And that is going to be part of the new creation somehow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is crazy. (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy. And that kind of leads into the Kintsugi thing. And I'd love for you to explain it because if I explain it's going to butcher it. But what I appreciated about the Kintsugi thing and i think this is what you were saying is something that i i'm very careful about because i experienced abuse in two different religious contexts and it was an awful experience but on the other side of that like i've made a career out of that and what i'm very careful very careful to say is not oh because this pain happened i got to do this i don't ever want to say that i think that the evil of abuse should yes. have never happened. And if it had never happened and I'd gone on a different path because it never happened, I would be fine. So the the fact that it has resulted in this good, mm-hmm. that is still true. Yeah. And and like this, I'm, I don't even know if I'm saying this right. I want you to explain it, but it's almost like this idea that the Kintsugi philosophy is not an explanation for the pain. Right. It's not a justification for the pain, but somehow the story wouldn't be possible without the pain and the pain is very needed for the story at the same time. That was what I got from it. I think you have the right patterns there. You're right. It is not this acknowledgement of an an invitation to be broken. No, it's not that at all. First of all, you have to have something valuable. Like I I have this teapot here that that is- Is this Kintsugi? Yeah, this has been kintsugi by my friend, who is a designer. We were doing kintsugi workshops, and this was the first kintsugi she ever did. It's like, Esther, this is like way too good. It's amazing. Yeah, so she mended the fracture here, right? That this was where the yeah. crack And then she added this little squeak. And so the resulting the, the design accentuates the fractures. But yeah. as gold is poured in there, it is valuable. And the end, end product is more valuable than the original. And my goodness, that, and you're right, we don't want to be cavalier about it and say, oh, so great traumas can be mended. Yay, and, it's so good yeah, that it happened. Yeah, 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 let's all do that. <laughs> you know? No, because you and I know how devastating it is. And how lost we, we, we are in that. There's no words that can describe the depth of pain or feeling of loss that you experience. And I think Kintsugi is beautiful because Kintsugi acknowledges all that, right? That, that, that these fragments of important teaware were started somewhere in 16th century, 17th century in Japan, refinement of what it means, what is beauty? Beauty is beauty something that is cosmetic and superficial and fan, this fanfare, flashy thing? Or is beauty cherry blossoms falling at the end of its time? Is beauty sacrifice, connected to sacrifice? And Japanese aesthetics started to turn and define beauty as something that would be approachable through death and sacrifice. And the families of tea masters often, because there's a lot of earthquakes in Japan, important tea will break, they would not mend the the tea ware for several generations. Mm they would tell, pass it on to the next generation. This is what happened with this board, who was served. And this is very important, but you need to hold on to the fragments until it is time to give it to a Japan lacquer master and mend it and, and, and kintsugi it. And so it, 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 several generations, right? Two, three generations. And it, for some reason, 
Japanese tea masters and families of tea masters value Korean tea ware, which is really interesting because Korea and Japan is like enemies, right? Wow. And, and as form of peacemaking, they would much rather have a rice bowl or noodle bowl used by a peasant in Korea, serve that in high tea to a shogun who is about to invade Korea. And if, if that breaks at some point, that is like so important. And so that's passed down through generations. It's hard to find these, but I was given a few by a, a tea master because I wanted to bring these to Columbine High School for the 20th commemoration. And I don't know what the response would be. I don't know if they will get it at all, but I presented uh, a Kintsugi Korean bowl, brought over to Japan, served in high tea, that broke and for several generations, they didn't mend it. And finally 19th century, Japan Master mended it and put gold on top. Presented a, a Columbine and I, I had the families hold this and, and, and I didn't have to say anything. One of the family members said, I can feel the trauma. Wow. Yeah. I just got chills. Yeah, I did too. I, I still do this. I can feel the trauma. And because you, when you hold something like a cup, you're touching the hands that made it, first of all. But there is this history to it that I think our bodies learn to ignore when you are going through trauma, you're dislocated and you need something to hold. And so something tangible like this, and, and I said, this is, I explained the history of it. This is from 17th century. It was in Korea, came to Japan, probably under enormous trauma. And now it's carrying that trauma and through many generations of tea masters who, who loved this, these fragments, they didn't even mend it. And I said, some traumas you can't mend mm-hmm. in a generation. It's take a long time. And this is the 20th and the families are like, not only they're not over it, this is like so difficult for them to commemorate every year. And they were saying how this might be the last time they will do a public commemoration. And I understand that because I, I think this is going to be generational work. Mm-hmm. And if Kintsugi can be a symbol, I gave a commencement address two years ago entitled the Kintsugi Generation, because I think the Generation Zs and the beyond, they, they, they have lived through so much fractures, right, in, in our society especially. And they're seeing the environment burn up and, and disappear. And they're asking, like, what, how do we move forward? Because the instinct is to integrate, to bring together these elements when there is fractures everywhere. And we, we don't even know what to do. Our generation is like shocked. Oh, I thought we were defending our, you know, turf, you know. <laughs> and the capital is seized, you know, yes. and, and things like that. We, we don't see it at all. Right. Oh, okay, we're, we're causing all these damage. But their generation is, yeah, what do we do? And so Kintsugi can be, I think, a metaphor and model for that. And one, especially when we can use our hands directly to touch, feel, connect with the past traumas. Mm-hmm. Like we're not alone in this. Like there's been generations that's been severely traumatized that has risen to that moment and created something beautiful like like Kintsugi. And we can learn from that. You said something in the book that I'm going to, I'm going to post on Instagram. We need music and theater, not just for entertainment, but as a proven way to survive our traumas. And this, this morning, I got an email from one of the one of the shows that I love on um, Broadway. Got an email that they're coming back in October, hey. and I was so elated. I haven't been in theater yeah. for yeah. over a year, and so I was just I was elated. Yeah. I was elated yeah. because it's coming back, and it is. I just I feel like oh, it's such a great picture of what art can do mm-hmm. in terms of just repairing these not even repairing the fractures that's not even even the word healing I feel like healing is overused overused because healing doesn't mean restored the way you were it means like you were saying yes and how 
somehow <laughs> it's better than the old new yeah the, right. the pretty fractured newness uh, three months since i read your book and i'm like oh okay two months <laughs> but, <laughs> but i'm still like thinking about I, I was thinking during the pandemic i i used to i wrote an essay a long time ago about um writers coming out of war like vietnam era or iraq and afghanistan and and I, I I said then if you removed all the literature that was directly impacted by front lines experience or line experience of war or war experience, you would lose like eighty percent of world. You literature. would, you yeah. totally would. Right. Hemingway is not there. J D. Salinger is not there. Gerald Tolkien, C.S. Yep. Lewis, Dante, you name it. And and then <laughs> during the pandemic, so I, I got curious. I was like reading up on all these art forms that emerged that are new into the world. And like Shakespeare, right? Shakespearean theater was built outside of London because of the Black Plague. Oh wow! And and because theater was scandalous too, you know. Right. But then Shakespeare created these tiers, right? Because he had to have commoners on the bottom and and patrons on the middle and kings and queens on top, right? And he wrote that to play them off each other, right? Right. <laughs> this is true. So Julie, Romeo and Juliet is a commoner and a prince falling in love, and you can see how this is like in the sequestered tiers, right? How the the art itself is designed to create a bridge, and we don't realize how much the impact that the Black Plague has had on Renaissance art and beyond. Frangelico. Certainly painted right in the midst of the Black Plague. Shakespeare had to create this theater outside of London, and that became the new art form because he was writing in that context to play that off. And Romeo doesn't know of Juliet's feigned death because the messenger was quarantined. Whoa! <laughs> I didn't. I missed that. Like I missed that detail. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> right <Blood> twist. What? <laughs> and, and so I'm like, wow. So so I thought about this, and seriously, I cannot think of a single art form that is enduring that was not directly influenced by trauma. It's hard to prove that. Then and and so is it possible? And and just in Sugi, what you said about kids, we don't want to fall into this, you know, trap of saying, "Oh, this is a great opportunity to create new art and blah blah right. blah." Because I know a lot of artists who are struggling, and it's not that. But we have to realize, on the other hand, there if we can understand trauma deeply, and one as you know, if you uh, trauma counselor, the number one thing you're trying to do is for people to be able to face their trauma right? mm-hmm. and 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 to name it and and to move into it and and that takes a long time sometimes it never happens if you keep running away it gets worse so healing doesn't happen by just you know coddling the pain but and art may be a way to do that mm-hmm. directly and yeah and by, just kind yeah. of in a Roundabout way. Roundabout way, without knowing, the intuitive side gets touched with this magic potion that that somebody wrote this piece. Rent came out of the AIDS crisis. Somebody wrote this piece in despair and in trauma, and somehow wrote a beautiful story out of it. And therefore, we can. It's like this antidote. <laughs> To realize inoculation, maybe to build up immunity toward our own despair and trauma. And the more the artists do that, the the more opportunities we have to understand our trauma, and and to be able to you know, given the power, maybe to walk into that rather than running away from it. I don't know. I, those are things I've been thinking about. <laughs> How have you personally experienced artist healing? I tell you, so about five years ago, I was going through severe darkness, and I remember a friend of mine who's a psychotherapist calling me every morning and saying, "I, 
are you going to your studio? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and, and I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but but because he did that, partly because he did that, I kept on going into my studio. Now I don't remember much of this. I disassociated much of this, and I just had a show at Gonzaga University where I showed this monumental piece. It's 33 feet long painting, wow. and I was standing in front of it and realized I don't remember painting this. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Like Was I, it during I just, that time? Yeah, I showed up. There's a photograph that my assistant took of me painting it. But I don't remember painting this. Now, therefore, it's probably one of the best paintings I've ever done. <laughs> Fully intuitive. <laughs> totally, totally. It was just showing up. And then I realized, like, by me going to the studio every day, I didn't feel like I... I, I could paint or I could do anything. And, but my body, once you're in there, it, it starts to move. And all of a sudden your somatic knowledge kicks in and you're painting. And by your, your, the side of your brain that has been so traumatized is not going to respond to that. It, it's almost it's still running away. Mm-hmm. So you disassociate, you disassociate, disassociate this. And I had this happen after 9-11. I lived three blocks away. Wow. So I, I was trapped underneath in a subway. And so every time I get into the subway, I, don't, I didn't remember which way I was going. Mm. Like I, I knew I was where I was going when I got into the subway. Like by the time I arrived to wherever I was going, I, I didn't remember. So I would often miss my stop, but I, I had T.S. Eliot's four quartets with me and I would read this out loud over and over in the subway. No one cared in New York City. <laughs> and, and, and They're because, a lot louder in New York City subways. Yeah, and because I needed to hear a human voice speaking to me in trauma, he wrote that in trauma. So mm-hmm. I, I needed to hear this right over and over. And so I, I miss my stops all the time. And I remember that. And this time, five years ago, I, I felt like I was in a similar dislocation. And all I knew was to get up, go to the studio and come back and get up. And, go to, mm-hmm. and, and I painted this monumental painting. But, but praise God, because that's the discipline of work. And that's what I worked so hard to cultivate in 30 years of my life as an artist, maybe more since my mother's painting, uh, the painting my mother kept. I have been doing this. My, my body knows. And sometimes that's how that's fine. You, you find light. Yeah. In that. You, you find hope in that. Yeah. And you can trust yeah. your body, even yeah. the trauma itself yeah. is yeah. a bodily protection. Yeah, exactly. So you're reacting against it. So that's why it's so good. It's so important actually have a consistent place for your work that's dedicated to your work. If your writer's desk, Emily Dickinson had 17 and a half inch by 17 and a half inch cherrywood desk. That's all she had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we don't need much, but the it has to be dedicated. And because your body knows when she got up at 3.30 in the morning because she had to take care of her mother, her body went to the table and she started to write. Her mind might be a little fuzzy, but, and I think that's, what we need. That's actually what everybody needs. Uh, whether you're artist or not, you need some location of making, whether it be your garden, kitchen, mm-hmm. whatever that may be, because that's the place where a trauma can, can be mended without us knowing, mm-hmm. even if we're disassociating, disassoci- it's going to start to do something. Mm. <laughs> So is there anything else as we were at the end of our time? Is there anything else you'd like to say to the church specifically? Can I read that benediction at the end? Yes, I would okay, love let me, let me Let me do that because I think that's my, if, if you hear this resurrect benediction as a church, you don't need to read my book. <laughs> <laughs> but you still should. You still should. <laughs> if, if you're intrigued, read my book, but you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, this it, is captures basically everything we're talking about so I'll, I'll, <laughs> oh i'm so, good. I'll end, so excited i'll end with this okay a benediction for makers let us remember that we are sons and daughters of god the only true artist of the kingdom of abundance we are god's heirs princesses and princes of this infinite land beyond the sea 
where heaven will kiss the earth. May we steal what the Creator King has given us and accept God's invitation to sanctify our imagination and creativity, even as we labor hard on this side of eternity. May our art, what we make, be multiplied into the new creation. May our poems, music, and dance be acceptable offerings for the cosmic wedding to come. May our sandcastles created in faith be turned into permanent grand mansions in which we will celebrate the great banquet of the table. Let us come and eat and drink at the supper of the Lamb now so that we might be empowered by this meal to go into the world to create and to make and return to share what we have learned on this journey toward the new. Mm, that was lovely. Thank, thank you, you for <laughs> thank you for reading that. Thank you for doing this. Absolutely. Thank you for being a mentor to the artists. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, and and thank you for what you're doing as well. And I look forward to perhaps seeing each other in person at some point. Oh my gosh, that would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that would be so amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm like, Absolutely. I will be you. excited all day. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it so much yeah. and definitely stay in touch. And I'll let you know when the episode is coming okay. out. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> Talk to you so later. Much. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review, and don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Katherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time. Hey.